I have entitled the message, The Lord of Life and Death. And I have to tell you, there's all kinds of restraints I have to place on myself to get through to where I want to go with the message today because there's so much more that we can cover. Last time, as we were here in the Gospel of John, and we began to look at this great chapter that deals with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, we got into the positioning of the miracle and how the, the word came to Jesus that Lazarus was sick and how he delayed. And we had a whole great message together on sickness for the glory of God. And we saw the preparation for the miracle, and that had to do with the people involved. The one person involved that's critical, the critical man is, of course, Lazarus himself, critical for so many reasons, reasons that will even yet be unfolded as we get further into the message, not even this time, but next time. And, of course, the concerned sisters who are so precious, we talked about the cringing disciples. These guys, when Jesus said to them, I want to go up to Judea again, and I want to see about this thing with Lazarus, their response was basically, no way. I think the best way to help you understand this would be to say that you have to look at it in the sense of mafia. Because the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had... In the final sense, they had utterly no concern for God at all. None. And that comes out in this chapter. When you understand that further, they had special links with the Roman government and obviously got their way with the governor the day they wanted Jesus dead. They got their way with Pilate by blackmail. What's going to happen in Rome if they find out that you've had another uprising here and they got their way? So you see the power they had with their special links with the Roman government. They had what was called the temple police, which were under the authority of the Pharisees that basically did whatever they asked them to do. So when you look at this, the only way... To analyze it is to say that you're dealing with very, very realistically a mafia-type situation. The last two times Jesus has been with them, they have tried to murder him collectively. Didn't bother any of them. They were of one mind to murder him. They used stones. If they'd had Tommy guns, I'm sure it would have just been as easy. And so when Jesus says, I'm going back up to Judea, the reaction of the disciples is it's a certain death to do it. And yet, he knew the Father had timing. He knew he had to get done in a certain amount of time what needed to be done. There was a peculiar attention given to time all the way through the Gospel of John. It's a peculiar thing that he brings out. The danger then is intensely real. There is nothing exaggerated about their concern that he will die if he goes to Jerusalem. And if they go with him, they will die. The bottom line is this. He's dead within a couple of weeks. The rest of the Gospel of John is a slow unraveling of those events. But what eventually happens is he goes back, he does heal Lazarus, and within about a week after that, he is hanging on the cross and he's dead and they've gotten the job done and they use an illegal trial in the middle of the night to pull it off, completely mafia style. The concern here... It causes these disciples to be cringing is very real. Jesus, in the midst of it all, is very confident and is ready to go do it. He knows he is invincible to the last moment. 
And I gave you last time in the preparation here, I gave you four sets of characters to uh, get us into the picture, but I have to add now a five because I told you I would. We ended last time with Thomas, remember? And I told you that Thomas had some things to say, and we looked at the negative side of Thomas. But then after the message was over and after the tape stopped rolling, I told you that next time we're going to come back and visit Thomas again. And that Thomas would have some things to say to our lives that would convict us deeply. Now, you have to understand at this point, then, to look at Thomas, to go down this road, we've got to go all the way down the road with Thomas. So it's going to take some time, but it'll be worth it. And I am confident that for many of us, it will totally alter our understanding of Thomas and even permanently do away with a cliche that is floating in many of our minds that has often been used to describe a skeptic, which is what? Yes, you've got it. So you're ready to go where we're going to go. I add then the fifth character here, and that is the committed disciple, Thomas. Thomas, who was called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, as I mentioned last time, granted, he has his pessimistic side. All right, let's all go and die then. That's very pessimistic. He is certain they are going to die. But he does at least say, let's go. I find in this man, at this point, what is the beginning of the other side, that the longer you stare at it, the greater it gets. You see, Thomas had a pessimistic side, but Thomas had a great devotional side. In other words, Thomas's name is, as you know, synonymous so often with doubt. And Doubting Thomas has long been the nickname that is used for skeptics. Not just in our day, but going all the way back just about to the first century. But a careful look at the gospel accounts reveals this disciple was in fact a man of great faith and dedication. And lest I forget, because this is on my heart now at the moment, it's not in my notes, but lest I forget, one of the most encouraging things about everything I'm going to say from here on about Thomas, this guy really does have a pessimistic bent to him. I have found in life that pessimists are usually pessimists. That's what they are. Optimists are usually optimists. Genetic, I don't know. But one way or another, temperament, I don't know. But one way or the other, they just tend to be that. I don't think I've ever met a pessimist in life who doesn't end up always that way. And I don't think I've ever met an optimist who isn't really an eternal optimist. Generally, you're one or the other. The encouraging thing to me is that this guy really is somewhat pessimistic, but... The overriding quality about his life, and here's hope for the pessimists, the overriding characteristic of his life in the end is not that he's a pessimist, but that he is a devout lover of Christ and cannot live without him. And to me, that is just one more great, marvelous truth about becoming a Christian, is that the dominating thing about your life is your love for Christ, not some characteristic you brought with you to your Christian life. So lest I forget, I think that's well worth mentioning. Now, Thomas then has a great devotional side because he doesn't only say, let's go die, but he does say, let's go. Everybody else is saying, let's don't go. Thomas at least is the one who says, let's go. 
See, he was willing to go and the others were not, and the danger was so real. If you understand the geography, even, Bethany is only about two miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits up on the mountaintop. It's not a very big place. There's a wall around the whole city. Jerusalem sits right up there. There is only the Kidron Valley, which is a small valley that separates it from the Mount of Olives. And thus you have, you can look from the top of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem down to the area of the Garden of Gethsemane. It sits at the base of the Mount of Olives. It's very close. And just around the back of the Mount of Olives is Bethany. So right where they attempted to murder him recently to where he's about to go, Bethany is only about two miles. Therefore, he's really going back into it by going back to Bethany. So he's willing to go when the others were not, and the danger is very real. Realizing that danger then, and gathering this all up, when he says, let us also go that we may die with him, he is willing to suffer the consequences with him, with Jesus. Now, if he was an optimist, he would not be anticipating the worst, would he? he would be anticipating the best in the midst of a bad situation, right? Thus, that move to go on up with him would require less courage because he would be anticipating the best, right? But because he anticipates the very worst, let's go up and die with him, his courage as a pessimist is far greater than it would be if he was the optimist. Are you with me? Therefore, this courage that he has, which is fueled by his love for Jesus, though he's a pessimist, is a fantastic courage. So when he says, let's go up and die with him, it really takes more courage than it would take if he was actually the optimist. He's willing to go when the others were not, and there's a lot behind that. You come to realize then, this guy is hardly a doubter. You see, this is an unreserved willingness to die for Christ. An unreserved willingness to die for Christ, that is hardly the mark of a doubter because of everything that goes into bringing the individual to that point that they'd be willing to lose their life for the name of Christ right here and now. So when you say, why was Thomas willing to go up to Jerusalem and to die for him? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying it's obvious he's going to die if he goes up there and I'm willing to go die with him. Why? Well, the answer is, is because... He totally believed in him. He totally believed in him. Everybody else on the team is saying, don't go, don't go. Thomas has something then, in a sense, that they don't have. So already we're beginning to see what kind of a category he is in. What this says when he says, let us also go that we may die with him, is that, and this to me is so tremendous, What it says is that Thomas had such an intense love for Jesus Christ that he could not endure existence without him. I would rather go up and die with him than have to live without him. So pack your bags, guys. Let's go. You see, if John remembers anything as he's writing... It seems to me that he pauses, because John wrote this late in life, his gospel. It seems to me that he pauses and he's just reflecting on that kindred spirit that he had with Thomas. John is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is 
If you remember, the only man at the cross when Jesus is dying. John had a love for Jesus that was unparalleled by anybody else on the team except, I think, Thomas. That's why it is John who lets us get to know Thomas. Nobody else talks about him. The only thing we gather from the other gospel writers about Thomas is his name. He's just in the list. It's John who brings out every detail that we know about Thomas because I think that they were so similar in their unwavering devotion to the Lord Jesus. See, if Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem in certain death, Thomas was too because the alternative of living without him was unthinkable. He was totally believing in him. This man loved Jesus Christ. And he was totally loyal to him. He had no illusions. He figured he was going to death, but he'd rather face death and be disloyal. Further, I love this about Thomas. I think we all need a good dose of this. He was willing to appear stupid, willing to appear stupid in front of everybody if he could stay close to him. Let me show you what I mean by that. Turn in your Bible to John 14. So often these statements are used against Thomas. I think they are wrongly used against him. In the upper room, following the Last Supper, in John 14:1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. Guys, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and Thomas does not like hearing that word go. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And now Thomas' hand shoots up. You know, you've heard that old saying that there's no such thing as a stupid question. The problem is none of us believe it, right? We always have questions that we're not asking. And we just sit either shyly or I'll I'll be looked on as dumb if I... Thomas loved Jesus so much, he was willing to appear totally stupid in front of all the guys just to stay as close as he could to Jesus. And he does that right here. Jesus comes right out. He says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. And I can just see all the other disciples. They're going, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's right. Say on, Lord. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And in their minds, they think, what in the world is he talking about? And Thomas is over here watching them going, big phonies. They don't know what he's talking about. They're just smiling and nodding. You know, they want the Lord to smile and nod back at them, you know. And he's sitting there going, I don't have a clue. And they can smile all they want. But I cannot bear the thought of not being where he is. And so his arm shoots up and he asks the stupid question. He says, look, Lord, excuse me, but verse 5, he says, he speaks for them because he knows them. He says, you know what, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Let them smile all they want. See this? They don't know where you're You don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going, Lord. And how can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? And I love the Lord's response. He doesn't question his devotion. He already knows he's willing to die for him. He already understands that like the rest of the disciples, after three years of Jesus talking to them, that he's going to go up to Jerusalem, that he'll be rejected, that he'll be betrayed by the scribes and Pharisees, that he will be taken and he will be killed and he will rise again the third day. You remember he got into that on the road when they were traveling one day and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Remember that? He says, no, you're not going to do that. 
he understands that these guys are pretty much still totally clueless. He has taught them clearly and it's been fly by. So when Thomas says, we don't know, they don't know, they can smile, they don't know, he just appreciates the fact that he's honest and he knows they don't know. And so he says, we don't know where you're going and how can we know the way? So what's Thomas thinking here? What Thomas is thinking is probably what they're all thinking. He's assuming he's going to take a long journey somewhere. He's going to go to a distant country somewhere. And he's going to build some houses there. And then he's going to come back and bring them and take them down to the new neighborhood. That's about the level of their thinking. But he's reasoning through and he's thinking, it can't be just that. It's got to be more to it than that. I'm going to ask the question. So Lord, tell us. He's bewildered. He's sad and he's anxious. And he is a pessimist. So he's thinking the worst. You know, he's going to take us and maybe he'll come back and take them all and leave me. Maybe they'll find out the way and I won't know the way. I'm just going to make sure right up front I know the way. Lord, we don't know the way. Tell us quickly, Lord, the way. And so here his love for the Lord makes his fear of being separated from him unbearable. But you know, I see nothing but love in our Lord's eyes when he responds to Thomas. And I hear nothing but love in the tone of his voice. When he turns and he says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's as if he is saying, oh, Thomas, you do know the way. You already do know the way. The way is to be in me. And if you are in me, you are in the way. And your only concern is to be with me, and that is to be in the way. You already have what you need to be with me. And I will take you wherever I go. And so that great statement that we quote so often is quoted in this setting to this disciple who was bold enough because of his great love and devotion to Jesus to ask what was perceived as the stupidest of all questions but was really a tremendous question. So Thomas has a pessimistic side and Thomas has a devotional side. But Thomas also has what I would like to call the incredulity of love. The incredulity of love. Great love. It has been said that deepest hurt is potentiated by greatest love. That to me makes all the sense in the world. Does that make sense to you? Well, let me put it this way. Often when you get in an argument with your spouse, the reason they're so upset with you is because they love you so much. Think about it. If they didn't love you so much, they would just be indifferent and apathetic and just turn around and walk away. It's the fact that they love you so much. Go ahead and elbow each other. It's a fit time for it. It's the fact that they love you so much that makes them so upset. Even if they're saying while they're upset that they don't. That only further proves and underlines the fact. Otherwise, it'd be indifferent and walk away. It is the deepest hurt is potentiated by the greatest love. So here's what happened. When Jesus is taken and he is crucified and he is buried, Thomas' worst fears have come to pass. So that Jesus has been killed and the disciples have been spared. Remember when they came to the garden? Basically a legion of soldiers with Judas. They came to the garden and they came to take everybody basically. And Jesus said, leave these alone. And with a supernatural word from God, 
that followed on I am, which caused them to fall over backwards and lay flat on the ground. When they got up and he says, leave these alone, they just, yes, whatever you say, you guys can go. It's almost like, you know, he just took over their minds. He spared their lives. So what happened then is that Jesus is killed and they are spared. To Thomas, that is far worse than death. Far worse than death, which he had been perfectly willing to accept. Let's go up and die with him. I'd rather die with him than live without him. To have him die and to be spared is far worse. So now this man feels forsaken. He feels rejected. He feels, even in a sense, in his pessimism, betrayed. And his very worst thoughts have come to pass. And now he looks at it all as if Jesus' promises have been sincere but empty. They have effectively been well-meaning but empty. And here it is. Because he loved Jesus so much, when Jesus is gone, the feeling of rejection was all the more deep and all the more painful. So he dies and he's gone and Thomas just takes off. We don't even know where he is. He is just trying to cope with it. Why? Because the deepest hurt is potentiated by the greatest love. So when the other disciples said that they had seen the Lord, and they came to Thomas and they said, We have seen him. It's like pouring salt into his open wounds. Don't tell me that. I am not in the mood for some fantasy that you have seen him. I cannot deal with that. It is unbearably painful to adjust to life without him. Don't come and play games with my mind and with my heart. I cannot bear that. And so you look at Thomas and all of this. His love for Jesus was so great he couldn't bear to be shattered by more false hope. So when they come and we know that famous line of what he says. If you turn your Bible, it's in John 20 and verse 25. You understand why he said this. Maybe for the first time. He is unbearably, painfully trying to adjust to Jesus' death when he's told that he is alive. And I use the word incredulity because it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. This is not some jerky pessimist who says, yeah, that's right, it is dangerous in Jerusalem, and I'm out of here now. This is a pessimist so overruled by his love for God that says it's dangerous in Jerusalem, I'm going to die with him. So when they say he's alive, it's too good to be true. That is why we read in John twenty twenty five, the other's disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord, and he said to them, look, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and I put my finger into the print of the nails, and I put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe what you're telling me. Now, it'll help you if you just compare real quickly Thomas with the reaction of the other disciples. In case you hadn't noticed, they were incredulous too when they were told that Jesus had risen from the dead. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb in John 20, in verse 1. And she found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb and it was empty. First thing she did is she got all excited and she ran to Simon Peter. And the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John. 
And said, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Peter went, and the other disciple, that's John, and they went to the tomb, and they ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet did not go in. And in John 20, verse 6, Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and saw the linen cloths lying there, actually lying there in Order, just the way they had been wrapped around his body. Then the other disciple and the handkerchief that had been around his face, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, John, went in and saw and believed. Notice, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, here is all the evidence he's risen from the dead. All the grave clothes are in perfect order. If it was a robbery, they would have unwrapped him. If they won the body, they would have unwrapped him and just thrown the garment, the cloths. They are laying there the way they would have been wound around the body. The thing wound around the face is folded neatly in a different place. It gives every evidence that he rose supernaturally right through the grave clothes without disturbing them and took the thing wrapped around his face and folded it with his own new resurrection body hands, the body that was able to not only fold something but rise through something. It's all the evidence they need. Wouldn't you expect the first thing they would do is go run and look for him? What are we told in the Bible that they did? says in verse 10, The disciples then went away again to their own homes. Oh, tomb's empty. Why didn't they go look for him? Before you're too hard on Thomas, get the full picture. Before you think these guys are ahead of Thomas, let me put it that way. We have seen the Lord, he's risen. I won't believe it until I touch him. Before you think that they are ahead of him, they are not ahead of him. Two of them go to the empty tomb. See all the evidence? Just go back home. Don't even go looking for him. Doesn't even make a dent. So here's what happens next. Jesus appears to ten of them. Judas is dead and Thomas is gone. Look at John 20, verse 19. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Wait a minute. They just saw the empty tomb. You just would assume they figured, oh, the Lord's risen from the dead. He's got control of this. They'd be in there in confidence. No. They are huddled and they're shaking and quaking for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now watch the next thing. Verse 20, John 20, 20. When he had said this, he what? He showed them his hands and he showed them his side. What's the next word? My Bible, New King James, the very next word after the period is then. Then the disciples were glad. When they what? Saw the Lord. What did they actually see? His hands and his side. See, what's the point of all of this? The point is, forever and always, everybody thinks these guys are ahead of Thomas. They're not ahead of him. And when he says, unless I can see his hands and his feet, what's that mean? I want to know it's him for real. This isn't some sham thing. I can't get over where I am unless I know it's him for real. Well, you want to know the truth? They couldn't either. What's happening to doubting Thomas? He's turning into devoted Thomas. If you're seeing the scriptures properly, you see, when he appeared again to them, he then 
down in verse 26, he singles out this dear soul, Thomas, who loved him enough to die for him, who was utterly shattered in his spirit, and he knew it. And it says, after eight days, the disciples, verse 26, chapter 20, were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst, said, Peace be to you, and immediately he says to Thomas, basically what he had said to them before, Reach your finger here, Look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He's not rebuking him. He's just saying, Thomas, it's really me. It's really me. It's not too good to be true. It is true. Now, let me ask you a question. If this guy was a big, gigantic doubter that he's been pinned to be, what would he have done? Stand back. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. Stand back. I'm taking off my gloves. Stand back. I'm going to do it. Put that hand out there, Lord. I'm going to put my finger in there. I'm going to wiggle it around, see if that's really flesh. Get that side over here. No, 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 no. What does he do? He falls on his face. He doesn't even touch him. He falls on his face. He says, reach in your finger here, verse 27, and look at my hands, and reach your hand your hand to my side. And in verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. He gives one of the greatest confessions to the deity of Jesus Christ in all the Bible. This man is not some flaky doubter. He is a loyal, devoted Lover of Christ. He's got a problem with pessimism in his life, yes. But it is overridden by his love for God. You know that tradition holds that Thomas preached as far away as India. And that he founded a church in India that still exists in southwest India and bears his name to this day. And that he died as a martyr with a spear being thrust into him. Thomas was a great man of God. Thomas was ready to go die with Jesus. Thomas' statement, let's also go that we may die with him, speaks volumes to us now. His fears were not unrealistic because there was real death waiting. They all eventually faced it. So we see the preparation. Let's go on then to the arrival of Jesus. I want to get into something here for the next few minutes that I think is very critical. We've seen the positioning, the preparation. Let's go to the arrival of Jesus. Jesus has delayed and then made the journey up to Bethlehem, and he comes up to Bethany, and he comes there in verse 17, it says, So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. So there's a big crowd there. This is a big scene. Robert Murray McShane used to say, live so as to be missed when you die. If you live godly and if you live loving, you will be missed when you die. If you live unto yourself, if you live unto yourself a selfish life, generally you will not be missed much when you die. To me, this is an index of the kind of a man that Lazarus was and thus why he was such a dear friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the Jews had turned out to comfort Mary and Martha concerning their brother. 
Now, Jesus is, of course, drawn here by the sovereign plan of God because the miracle that he's about to perform has endless ramifications. And so that is built in here. And we're going to see that more as we go along. But the other thing that I like here is that he was drawn here by his love for his friends. Can you look at John eleven three, When the sisters had sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, whom you love is sick. If you were here, you remember that we studied how that one of the beautiful things about this note is there's no demands placed on Jesus at all. No demands. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick, and that's it. I think part of the sensitivity of the fact there's no demands, there's just a submission to his love and the fact that he would seek the highest good for the one that he loved, as he always did. That was his testimony. That was his way. But the other thing is that I think it's obvious. They understood. If he comes back here, he's coming back to a death threat. They will kill him for sure. How could we say to him, Lord, you have to come? How could we say, Lazarus is sick, you have to come now? They couldn't. Because they knew there was a death threat waiting for him. And so on a human level, there is this great tender relationship between these people. They simply send off the note and they leave it in the hands of his love and his wisdom. He is drawn, of course, by the sovereign plan of God. But he is also drawn as a human being into great danger because of his great love. It's almost as if he got a soldier on the battlefield who had a good buddy that was always at his side and he gets over on enemy lines and he's down on his back and word gets across and that guy will crawl on his belly through all the enemies to get to his buddy and his buddy looks up and he can't move because he's paralyzed, his leg's been shot off and he whispers, I knew you'd come. And then he gets him out of there. It's that kind of thing. They don't demand him to come but they know that he'll come if it's at all possible, and he does, drawn by his love and the sovereignty of God's plan. Jesus comes to Bethany. Now, it's amazing to me and very instructive. Jesus comes to Bethany, and Jesus encounters a faith that limits him to time and space. As many positive things as we can say about Martha and Mary here, and there are just so many, we come to John eleven twenty. It says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went out and met him. Because there's this big, huge crowd, and she understands, one second they see him, I'll never get to him. She went out ahead and met him. So they're out away from everybody alone. Mary is back sitting in the house, which was the position you would assume in great mourning. But she has already limited him. This is what I want you to see. She's already limited him. He has come. He has shown up. But she's already limited him. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know if you see it, but I see it immediately. I see a, a contrast here between her and the Roman centurion that came to Jesus in Matthew 8, 5. He came to Jesus. You can turn there if you want. Matthew 8, 5. Jesus entered Capernaum and a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is at home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and I will heal him. And the man says, the man says, Lord, 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 I am not worthy. Matthew 8, 8. I am not worthy. You should come under my roof. You don't have to come. 
You can settle it all from right here. Lord, speak the word. You just speak the word and my servant will be healed. You don't have to come. And he says in verse 9 of Matthew 8, For I am also a man under authority. I have soldiers under me. I say to this one, go. And he goes to another, come. And he comes unto my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard that, the Bible says he absolutely marveled. He just stood back and he went, wow. This guy's a Roman already. You know, he's Jewish. This guy's a Roman already. You guys travel with me. You people follow me everywhere. I feed you. I do nonstop miracles. And I haven't seen this kind of faith among anybody in Israel. This guy is an outsider. He's a Roman. And he's got it all already. He marveled and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And in Matthew 8, 13, Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And then, it's recorded by Matthew, his servant was healed that very hour. I don't know about you, I think of that immediately. When Martha, back in John 11, says to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would still be alive. She has limited him in a way that this Roman, this outsider, did not. And Jesus doesn't want her limiting him. So you might say, well, wait, wait, wait. Give Martha a break. You didn't read verse 22. Because in verse 22, Martha says, but even now, I know whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Okay. Glad you're thinking. Glad you're sharpshooting. But you see, she wasn't expecting a resurrection. She was only expecting some good godly comfort and whatever the Lord might do to minister to their hearts. The reason we know she wasn't expecting a resurrection is because when he gets over near the tomb, she says, don't, 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 don't open that tomb. Don't open that tomb. He's rotting in there. Don't try to raise him from the dead. So, she has severely limited him. Lord, I know whatever you ask you, God, he'll do. He'll comfort our hearts. He'll dry our tears. He'll do some neat things. But she's limited him. Now watch what she does. This is so human, so much like us. He ministers to her to draw out her faith, and she continues to limit him. He speaks a word to her that he might work here and now. And in verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. It's like, that's why I'm here. And she responds with a faith for Jesus to work way out in the future. Way out in the future. She says to him in verse 24, look at John eleven twenty four. Martha said to him, I know, I know he will rise again in the resurrection, Lord, at the last day. Jesus is not talking about that. She's got all this faith for the future. She's got it all limited for right now. Jesus seeks to draw her faith out. He's effectively saying, let me be God here and now. Let me be the Lord of the living and the dead here and now. Just let me be all that I am, Martha, right here and now. That is why I came. And so in 11.25, we get these great well-known words, but ministering to this situation of her limiting him by her faith. She's limiting him. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am. I am always. The resurrection. That's what I am. And I am. It's not an act. It's not something just happens. It's me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me 
shall never die. Martha, you're alive right now. Martha, do you believe in me? Martha, do you believe this? I like that. Do you believe this? Martha, now it's good current. Martha, I'm here. I came a long way. Martha, do you believe this? And I ask you today, do you believe this now, today? Or is your faith all bundled up in the future somewhere? Yeah, I believe I'll rise and go to heaven. Fine. But do you believe that He is the resurrection and the life today? Do you believe that He is all that He is today, right now, here with you, to meet your need, here and now, not bound by time, not if you had been here a few days, but today, right now, because He is here with you right now. This is for all of us. Jesus comes to Bethany. Jesus encounters a faith that limits him to space and time, and he seeks to draw her out. And in the process, he declares himself Lord of life and death here and now. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You have to believe in him first while you're alive. And then you'll never die. Do you believe this? In doing this, he gives the final word to all. All human beings, because all will eventually die. Everybody's encouraged these days that with modern science that people are living longer. And nowadays, people do live longer than they did 25 or 30 years ago, and we are grateful for that. People don't generally die of smallpox, diphtheria, polio, and those things anymore. But on the other hand, deaths due to heart disease and cancer and things like this are skyrocketing. And in the end, it seems that everybody is oblivious to one constant. That one constant reality that the death rate, in spite of all of this, remains exactly the same. Maybe a few years are at it, but the death rate remains the same as it has always been, a flat 100%. A flat 100%. John 11, if we could pull this all together, is a chapter on death. Do you see it? It is a chapter on death and all that's attended with it. It's the grim fact that faces us at every turn in the chapter. It is there. I venture to say that in a congregation this size, that every single one of us has been touched by the reality of death in the last year. Every single one of us in some way. Death touches all of us. It usually, not always, but usually comes without warning. It's like the grim reaper, if you look at it from a, a human standpoint. It has no respect of persons. Death will come and visit a child as well as an older adult. Death will come and, and visit a teenager in the prime of life. Death will visit a young businessman who's just got his career really going and maybe at the zenith of his whole career, death comes. Death will come and take a person regardless of their reputation. Death will take a person regardless of their age, their color, their race, their country, their background. What am I saying? I'm saying when death invades, we all submit. Everybody's going to die. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he said, do you believe this? As we come to a close here, I want to give you five things that happen to people when they find out they're terminally ill and they're going to die. Five things. The response people go through when they find out they're going to die. You may die suddenly or you may find out that you're going to die. And you'll go through this. Unless you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the resurrection and the life, you're not going to be ready. We heard tonight 
of a missionary on the field in the will of God, giving 100% for Jesus, who died in the arms of her husband in the act of prayer. And there is no greater, nobler, higher way to die than that. To go to heaven that way, to die well. What happens when people find out they're going to die? The first thing is they go into denial. They say, not me. Not me. That is the initial response. Not me. Lord, is it true? Not me. And generally people start crying God at that point. The person that hears it will deny it. There is the record of a 16-year-old girl who was driving a carload of teenagers from a football game and that car smashed head-on into a concrete culvert. The 16-year-old girl was the driver and she was the lone survivor. She testifies in the grim record that the common words she heard from the screaming lips of those dying around her were all the same. They were all screaming, Oh God, no, not me. Denial. But you see, we're all going to die. It will be me. The second reaction people have is, after the denial, is anger. If you find out you're going to die and you have time to think about it, it's anger. You move from not me to why me. And they, they find that individuals get angry and they move into isolation and they won't eat and they won't take any food and they'll just slip away from reality and they begin to manifest their anger in every direction and everybody that even tries to help them. Anger. Then they move from anger to bargaining where they begin to bargain with God. The kind of thing where they say, okay, 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 okay. If I'm going to die, then, then let's just make a little bargain here. Let me live till such and such a date. Let me just see my daughter get married. Let me just see my grandchild born. Let me just experience this trip that I was planning. Let me just have a year of my retirement. Let me live in that log cabin in Yellowstone. If I will face death realistically, will you do this for me? And the bargaining process gets underway. And you know what? That leads to a fourth thing, which is depression. This is where a person slumps into a place of deep darkness emotionally. And it isn't just experienced by them, it's experienced by those with them. And finally comes the last reaction, which is acceptance, which is, I'm really going to die. Now, you see, if you're not a Christian, that's a grim reality. I'm really going to die. And you start groping at that point. If you're a Christian, you settle into God's will. It is appointed unto men, appointed, an appointment wants to die. And you begin to look toward God who in His sovereignty and His grace and His goodness has appointed your time to go. You have that moment and you resign yourself to He who ever and always seeks your highest good. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. And you put your life into His hands. Jesus said, though a man die if he believe in me yet he shall live in other words you will never die if you believe in me so to find out you're going to die it's imminent leads you to the point where you start thinking in terms of launching pad 
you start thinking in terms of fireworks going off at Disneyland, exploding in the sky with all different kinds of glory. You start thinking in terms of an appointed hour. You start thinking in terms of a God who is always on time, who's never too late, who doesn't waste time, and every movie makes is for your highest good. You start thinking in terms of we're all here until he's done, and all these things, and you are ready to go, and you die well. I'll leave you with this. I love it, that story of Don McClure's father-in-law. You know Don McClure, Pastor Don, who when he died, had lived with God all his life, died in an old age. He was laying there in his bed in the hospital, and he shouted out suddenly, bring me a bucket. And they said, what do you want a bucket for? He said, bring me a bucket. It was just on the verge of death. And he said, I want a bucket. They said, what do you want a bucket for? He said, I want to kick the bucket. And they brought him in a bucket, and on the end of his bed, he kicked it. And then he died, laughing. Laughing, full of the glory and the hope of Jesus, that he is resurrection, and he is the life. Because he is. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Jesus, thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. And for those in the human race who live all their days subject to the bondage of the fear of death, you have come to break that bondage in our lives. You have come to set the captives free. You have come to override the pessimism of those who are that way by temperament and override it with the love of God that casts out all fear. You've come, Lord, to bless and to fill and to free and to give life. And we thank you, Jesus, that in believing in you, we will never die. But the death of our bodies will only be the beginning of passing from the shadowlands into the full dawn that will never set, the dawning of your glory to be revealed to us and in us. And Lord, we thank you for this great hope that is ours in Christ. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.